This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 11, Phenomenology. Um, so we ended last time um, with the suicide of Vladimir Mayakovsky in April 1930 and his friend Roman Jakobsen's description of him as a man who was absolutely unsuited for life. And I, I want to start by revisiting this idea of why was he unsuited for life? And that has to do with the relationship between art and life. Because what is changing with the avant-garde is not just art and literature of themselves, but the relationship between art and life. You know, Alexander Vaught described the thrill of being a futurist as, for us, the joy came from the fundamental collapse that there was now room for everything, that everything was doable. So you cross that boundary from art as representation to art as transformation, that the world could be kind of created ex nihilo, that nothing was, nothing was previously given. And that was this unhinging that was thrilling and dizzying but also terrifying. There is, by the way, a very interesting historiography about the relationship between the avant-garde and Stalinist culture and socialist realism. Um, and in particular, an argument that the art theorist Boris Groys makes that the fatal step in terms of the Stalinization of art was not actually imposing any kind of communist ideology per se on art, but rather the fatal step was crossing the border from art as representation to art as transformation. Um, this idea that art is not a mirror to reflect the world, it's a hammer to shape it, that kind of opens a space for social engineering on a previously unimaginable scale. But I also want you to think about the fact that when the avant-gardist who embraced things like futurism and Dada, which were about radical contingency, and in a certain sense, radical nihilism, in the sense of radical nothingness as radical freedom, a space for experimentation, that that was both thrilling, but it was so groundless that they ultimately fled that there was something existential unbear um, existentially unbearable about that kind of groundlessness. And I want you to put that in your heads because this kind of fear of groundlessness is going to kind of underline now, now today's lecture. Then there's also a feeling of, of a kind of an attempt to escape the unbearable burden of one's own subjectivity. And they make this leap from radical nihilism and radical contingency to radical utopianism and radical determinism when they join the communist revolution. And then when the, the Polish futurists, who are the ones I know most intimately because I spent years commuting with them in the archives, when they do make that leap from futurism to communism, and they finally manage to get themselves arrested in interwar Poland as communist, nothing makes them happier than to be in a cell with a real worker. They feel like they are finally like, 
they, they have finally found a place for themselves. And Witold Wondorski, who appears in the story I sent you this morning about Mayakovsky, he is so excited to be in a cell with a real worker. And he's like, look, it's my pet worker. And I'm teaching the worker, and the worker likes me, and we're coming to understand one another. You know, and I'm finding a place for myself in the world. This leap into the arms of revolution. And there was something self-annihilating about it. There was something both condescending and narcissistic and self-annihilating, you know, and masochistic, all of that wrapped up at the same time. Now, Alexander Vaught writes, when he's very young, in an extraordinary poem, um, he says, at midnight it is always necessary to place your head under the dazzling, yes, dazzling knife of the guillotine. So this kind of, this urge to self-annihilation um, which was also part of all this. And it, it ends, as I said, very badly um, for all of them. Um, Roman Jakobson is kind of the exception. He seems to have nine lives. He survives every great historical catastrophe and lives a long life. He is also the hinge figure between the avant-garde and linguistic structuralism and phenomenology. I won't have time to get into the details of that, but you can just kind of bookmark that in your head. Oops. My notes falling apart. Um, so I want to take you now, I mean, Jakobsen was one of the few people who was kind of connected to both Mayakovsky and to Husserl. Um, and that, it speaks a lot to the kind of character Roman Jakobsen was. And we'll talk about him again when we talk about structuralism because he's going to come in um, with structural anthropology and Levi-Strauss. But his ability to pull the most radically disparate groups of people together was quite remarkable because no one could have been more of an alter ego of the avant-garde than Edmund Husserl. If the avant-garde was all this kind of wild, crazy aspiration to break all previously existing conventions, if there was this sense of the world had gone up in flames and everything was possible, if there was a lot of, a lot of sex and a lot of alcohol and a lot of generally lifestyle experimentation, Husserl is going to be the opposite. Husserl, we're going to move to like very boring bourgeois lifestyle. Um, he, unlike Mayakovsky, who lives for quite a while in a menage a trois with Lilia and Osip Brick, and they are at the center of the Russian formalist circle, yeah. Edmund Husserl is going to like get married, you know, fairly early, but not scandalously early, to a woman from his hometown, which was you know, a town in Habsburg, Moravia to another Habsburg Jew. They're going to convert together to Protestantism. Um, they will have three children. She will be a traditional wife. She will do everything for him. All he has to do is think great thoughts, and she will make the tea and make the food and take care of the children and host his graduate students and edit his manuscripts and retype them and all that stuff. So we're kind of moving into, we're moving into a different mode. Um, but what I want you to see is that he's an alter ego in the sense that he's also kind of the other side of a lot of the same conceptual issues that they're having. He's the other side of the same impulse in modernity to resolve the problem of groundlessness. Um, 
And he's going to share with the first wave modernist and with Freud a radical notion of subjectivity. And, you know, a turning to the, the deepest and most extreme notion of subjectivity. And he's going to share with the avant-gardist a kind of aspiration for maximalism. The sense of whatever it is, you've got to go all the way. Um, so there are, you know, through all these differences, there are some deep and very profound similarities. And they are contemporaneous. And so I kind of want you to have a sense of how these stories fit together. We'll cover today more or less the same period um, from the avant-garde, basically just kind of before, during, and after the First World War. Um, as a very, you know, you know, as a generalization, the avant-gardists are going to mostly get destroyed by Stalinism, and the first generation of phenomenologists are going to get destroyed by Nazism. But basically, we're getting to that moment in the 20th century where things end badly for most people. You know, they're going to come into confrontation here with Nazism and Stalinism. Remember, the First World War is that moment when Europe goes up in flames. Everything that was solid melts into air. Everything you knew is kind of gone. You know, and then nobody knows what the new rules are going to be. You know, four great empires fall, the whole map of Europe is redrawn, suddenly you need a passport to travel. Um, this, the avant-garde's feeling that there is radical freedom and you have to embrace that, you just kind of jump into that free fall, you know, was because nothing is certain. There can't be any certainty. You know, that was both a source of ecstasy and a source of despair. You know, and I want you to kind of see how those things go together. And the avant-garde brings them together in a particularly vivid way. I mean, for Husserl, that feeling is reflective of the problem, the modern problem of philosophy, which is this lack of grounding. You know, where can we start? Of what can we be certain? And this probably sounds familiar because it should remind you of Descartes and Husserl goes back to Descartes. He's obsessed with Descartes. He has this idea that Descartes was asking the right question. You know, you have to perform this radical experiment of taking out of your mind everything you thought you knew and starting over with nothing and saying, okay, beginning with nothing of what can I be certain? Hum. So I'm now, Husserl, much more so than the avant-garde, is technically difficult. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to try to kind of get into some of his ideas from a couple different directions in the next half an hour or so, and hopefully one of them will click. I mean, I should first say that you know, I, I, I'm finishing a book about phenomenology now, or at least about thinkers who are connected to phenomenology. I've spent a lot of time reading Husserl and grappling with this. There are still things I don't understand. <laughs> there are still moments in Husserl I'm going to try to take you through where I can tell you, in some sense, how he thinks he can do this, but it doesn't completely make sense to me. So just like, just bear with me, and I'll try to kind of... I'll, I'll, I'll try to take you as close as I can into what was going on in, into his side, his head, as best as I can figure it out. We're going to go back to talking about subjectivity. And now it's not going to be subjectivity versus teleology so much as we're going to go back to this epistemological problem of subject versus object. 
we're back to this problem with the bridge. How do you get from inside to outside? How do you get from mind to world, from consciousness to being? You know, how do I know that, um, what do I have here? Okay, so how do I know that this cup of iced tea is real, that this microphone is real, that it's not just a projection of my consciousness? How can I be sure that, that you're there, that these chairs are, are here, that these lights are here? How can I be sure the world exists? How can I be sure of anything? Because I'm always inside my head. There's no way to get outside your head in order to verify how things would, would look if you were outside your head. Um, so now when we talk about subjective and objective, we're going to be talking about the subject and the object. Now obviously these are relative positions because in later lectures we're then gonna get into intersubjectivity. So I'm looking at you and you're an object for me, but you're also looking at me and I'm an object for you. So subject versus object, we're starting with that first person perspective, I am the subject, everything outside of me is the object, okay. Um, Husserl is also the third in our trio of rebels against positivism. So remember, we had Bergson and we had Freud, and now we're going to have Husserl. And he is the trickiest to understand in terms of his rebellion against positivism, in large part because he is going to remain very close to the thing he rebels against. You know, and that's one of the things that, that makes him very tricky. Um, Freud has this wonderful phrase, which is the narcissism of minor differences which is that the smaller the differences get, you know, the more people become obsessed with how important they are. So you could think about you know, Husserl's rebellion against positivism in some sense as a kind of narcissism of minor differences, but we'll get into that later. So on the one hand, phenomenology is going to be a subjectivist rebellion against what it felt was the fanatical objectivism coming out of enlightenment of 19th century science. Um, this idea that there can be the model of laboratory sciences, of the natural sciences, the idea that there can be a view from nowhere. The idea that there is such a thing as an Archimedean point, a fly on the wall who can observe completely objectively. And I'll, I'll read you a couple quotes um, from Emmanuel Levinas, who is going to be one of Husserl's later students, um, because Levinas is a much better writer than Husserl and describes, <laughs> describes better what drew him as a young person you know, to this new philosophical school. And Levinas describes how he felt like this 19th century positivism was like a scent of science, science aspiring to the realm of pure objectivity, this realm of pure objects, which was like a jump into nothingness. I mean, it felt like there was nothing real there. It was equivalent, Levinas says, to a leap into nothingness. And then Levinas says what he loved about phenomenology was that it reverses the scientific attitude. Newton's physics, Levinas says, precisely turns away from the subject for the greater glory of the object. It decrees the expulsion of every so-called subjective element from the object. So this desire that there was something kind of existentially impoverishing 
about positivism that's kind of cold and dry. You see this coming up again and again with these critiques of enlightenment. Emotionally unsatisfying, existentially thin, you know, too much rationality. What if I don't want two plus two to equal four? What if I don't find that satisfying? This keeps coming up again and again. This sense that we have expelled and expunged the subjective element and we're making this leap into the purely objective, which is like a leap into nothingness. Um, so this, so we're going back now, we're gonna inject a lot of subjectivity. Now this radical subjectivity that's coming to us, you know, in the modern period, takes at least two forms. You know, and now you have the second one. There's a psychological self of Freud, and we're gonna get the phenomenological self of Husserl. And again, like one each is going to be the alter ego of the other. You know, they're both kind of antithetical completely opposite and yet in some ways kind of different sides of the same coin, of the same phenomenon, of the same attempt. And Husserl and Freud have like uncannily similar backgrounds. They're both these Habsburg, you know, assimilated Jews who study in Vienna. They, in fact, they both study with the Jesuit philosopher Brentano. Um, they're born within like three years of each other. You know, they're both going to rebel against positivism. They're both going to come up with theories of radical subjectivity. Um, but Freud's self is going to be the polar opposite of how Husserl will conceive itself. Um, so that's, that's another way to think about it. So Husserl is going to rebel against the objectivism and the kind of anti-subjectivity of the natural sciences of 19th century positivism, but he is also going to rebel against what he will call psychologism. This idea that everything is just about how our mind works that the only thing we can really know and be sure of are these rules about how the mind works and we can study that. You know, and that things like logic, truth, verification, evidence, reasoning, these are simply empirical activities of our mind, you know, of our psyche. And that the laws of truth and logic can be reduced to laws about how the mind works. So he also finds that dissatisfying. So he's going to rebel against both positivism and psychologism. And there's going to be kind of a, he's going to try to find a space for himself in between. And it's not that easy to grasp that because again, he's rebelling against a lot of things that he's going to remain a hair's breadth away from himself. And that, that's the tricky thing. It's a very, you know, phenomenology against psychologism is gonna be a very subtle difference. In contrast to enlightenment reason against romantic passion, which is a very clear difference. Um, or Hegelian idealism and you know, Marxist materialism, again, you can like it, you can not like it, but the difference is clear. Whereas Husserlian, you know, Husserl's idea of subjectivity versus psychologism is again, it's gonna be a hair's breath. Okay. Um, Phenomenology is going to kind of come in and attempt to liberate us from the egocentric predicament, from the solipsism problem, which is basically that idea that the mind is like a box, a kind of windowless box that we're all kind of inside our own heads. The view that nothing else can really exist except one's own self and the contents of consciousness, um, the idealist argument in philosophy, which says that nothing can really be known for certain except that the contents of one's own consciousness. Um, and so what phenomenology is going to do is going to, Husserl's gonna look for a way out of that box. 
He's going to try to find a way to get consciousness to burst out of, of that box and make a much greater claim to objective truth. It's going to burst forth towards the object. And again, the problem here, it's the problem of the bridge. It's the problem of the bridge that is with us, at least since Descartes, is the epistemological problem. People keep coming back to it again and again and again. Kant thought he had solved it as much as it could be solved. Husserl is going to be dissatisfied with Kant's solution. And, and I'll get to that in a second, but let me just tell you a couple things about Husserl's biography first. Um, he was born in 1859, so same generation as Bergson and Freud. Um, a, a town that was then called Prosnitz, it's now called Prostejov, um, in Moravia, which was then the Habsburg Empire, later it's Czechoslovakia, presently it's the Czech Republic. He is one of many German-speaking Jews who rejects Judaism. You notice this is a big theme. Um, unlike, there, there's huge literatures on Marx, Kafka, Freud as self-hating Jews, as angstladen Jews, as people who spend their whole lives struggling with their Jewish identity, as Jews who didn't believe in God. But there's no literature in Husserl, almost no literature in Husserl, um, either as a self-hating Jew or anything else biographical. And I mention this because it's indicative of the extent to which there's so little to say. He lived for this philosophy. You know, and I've, I've spent like the better part of the past decade or so trying to kind of get my mind around him as a historical character so I can kind of bring him to life in my book. And it's really tough. <laughs> it's really tough. Like it's hard to find, you know, existential doubts about, you know, the Jewish question or, you know, how he felt. I mean, they're like tiny little pieces. But basically the reason why there's not such a big literature is that he was really consumed by this philosophical search for truth. Um, years ago, maybe 12 years ago, before um, Krzysztof Michalski, who was one of, the, one of the great phenomenologists of his generation, born after the war from Poland, before he died, and we were reading Husserl together. Um, and that was, I learned more about Husserl and about Heidegger from reading with Krzysztof, um, probably than I, I have from anywhere else. And when Krzysztof died very prematurely, I thought, I'm never going to understand Husserl. That was like my, <laughs> was my best moment. We were kind of sitting together and going paragraph by paragraph. But I was constantly asking him questions about, about Husserl's life. And at a certain point, you know, he turned to me, he said, Marcy, he wasn't like you. He had no emotional life. <laughs> You're not going to understand him that way. <laughs> like, there's just, you know, there's just the philosophy. <laughs> like, you just go back to the text, you know. There's, um, and I think there are, like, there are some exceptions to that. I found some moments in Husserl here or there, and I'll, I'll, come back to, I'll come back to one of them at the end. But he's very tricky to kind of get your mind around biographically. Um, what I was very, he starts out, he's studying math, he's studying, a lot of these guys started out as mathematicians. He's also studying psychology, he's studying astronomy. And what I was very excited was when I found some traces that he had an obsession with eyeglasses. And I thought, ah, we have something in common. I also have an obsession with eyeglasses. But then it turned out that he was obsessed with the lenses, not the frames. <laughs> like, I have this thing about eyeglass frames. I love eyeglass frames. Um, but yes, Husserl didn't care about the frames, but he was very into lenses, microscope lenses, binoculars, eyeglass lenses, monocles, telescope lenses. This can you, and I, I mention this um, not only because it's my failed attempt to commune with Husserl, but because that 
metaphorically and probably more than metaphorically is a key to his obsession, which was seeing clearly. Can you actually see the world clearly? Can you see it precisely? Can you see it so clearly that you can be absolutely sure that what you're seeing is real? And his obsession with lenses clearly you know, had, you know, had a relationship to this. Um, the other interesting moment in biography is that from a very young age, he goes to study when he's still a teenager um, as a very early university student in Leipzig, and he meets Tomasz Masaryk, who is a philosophy student a few years older than he is, who will ultimately become the founding president of Czechoslovakia. And they develop a very close friendship, which in fact lasts throughout their lives. Um, in any case, um, Husserl, one of the... the Polish philosopher and artist and crazy novelist, Witkacy, who is an avant-gardist, who is also obsessed with Husserl, um, writes to one of Husserl's students, Roman Ingarden, who I'll return to at the end today, and said, the problem with Husserl is that he has no body. It's like he's like eyes, glasses, and a beard floating in space. It's like he's not really in the real world. You can't get a hold of him as a real person. Uh, and I think there, there's something very perceptive about that. Um, okay, so let me now try to, now that I've told you a little bit about Husserl, friendship with Masaryk, has a very bourgeois life, his wife is absolutely devoted to him and does everything for him, um, and he had a fetish with eyeglass lenses and in fact with lenses of all kinds, and he was perceived as not having a body. Um, let me go back now and try to kind of loop into phenomenology from a different direction. What is knowledge? These big epistemological questions. What does it mean to know something? How can I know anything? How can I know the world? How do I know that there's a correspondence between what I think I know, what I think I see, and what's actually real. This correspondence problem, how do I know that? Um, and Husserl in one of his lectures says, but how can we be certain of the correspondence between cognition, the act of thinking, and the object cognized, the object that we're thinking of? How can knowledge transcend itself and reach its object reliably? How can I, the cognizing subject, the thinking subject, how can I ever really know that there exists not only my mental processes, these acts of cognizing, but also that which I apprehend? Okay, so this is the question. Now there's a couple like terms I put on your handout that I'm sure I've mentioned before, but I'll just mention them again. The idea of to transcend, what is transcendent? You know, so this say what is imminent is inside, what is transcendent is outside. Usually in this context, the inside, outside, the border refers to consciousness. So this what is transcendent is on the other side of some kind of boundary, in this case on the other side of consciousness. Now, one of the things I put on your handout that's crucial is transcendental which is not to be confused with transcendent, although it's related. 
And Husserl is going to more or less continue Kant's usage of the word transcendental. And again, I keep reminding you of this. Everyone kind of gives their own spin to these words. So the words, the meaning of the words is kind of evolving and it's somewhat philosopher and thinker specific. What Kant jumps in and says, transcendental refers to the conditions of possibility for transcendence in the sense of knowledge of the object. What are the transcendental conditions? You know, so transcendental is not just on the other side, but what makes some kind of crossing that border possible? What makes it possible for your mind to cross the border? Those are the transcendental conditions. And Husserl is going to continue that vocabulary to some extent, he's gonna come up with something called the transcendental ego, um, which is going to be central. And I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Okay, um, so Husserl is very admiring of Descartes. He thinks Descartes had the right idea, but doesn't go far enough. Where Descartes gets rid of everything that you could possibly think you know, and then says, okay, starting from zero, what can I be sure of? I can't be sure of the content of my thoughts. Maybe they were put there by an evil demon, who knows, um, or malicious genius, or whatever. But I can be sure I'm having thoughts, therefore I must exist. Therefore you get the famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Um, and Husserl thinks that Descartes had the right idea, you've got to start at absolute zero and build up from there, from absolutely nothing. Um, now Kant, who is the figure, the key figure, in between Descartes and Husserl, Husserl has a very different attitude too. He's extremely admiring of Descartes, whereas he's extremely dismissive of Kant. He thinks he has left Kant in the dust. <laughs> um, I'm going to argue that you know, in the end, I think what he comes up with is just a hair's breadth away in some sense from what Kant comes up with. And we're back to that narcissism of minor differences problem. Um, but what he can't, what Husserl cannot stand about Kant, you know, and I, um, I tell you this because I, I think it might help you commune with Husserl, is that remember Kant, get, Kant is radical in his moderation. Kant's like, yes, there is a real world. There are all sorts of reasons to believe the world is real, but we don't have access to how the world exists outside of our own consciousness. So let's just put that aside because the ding on zik, the thing in itself, there's no way to get to that without going through the prism of our consciousness. There's no way to get outside our head. So let's just put it aside. You know, and let's focus on what we can know, what is possible. Kant, I think, in his own way, was a fairly cheerful, optimistic, reasonable person. Husserl can't stand this. It's fatalism. It's giving up. It's just you might as well, like, jump off a cliff from Husserl's point of view. Like, if you're just going to give up on the possibility of getting to the real thing, he, just, he can't, like, it's unbearable for him. And that's, in some sense, it's that feeling that that's unbearable that I think is the key to understanding Husserl. A Croatian philosopher I, I knew, we once had this long talk about Kant and Husserl, and she's like, he, Husserl just couldn't stand these dinghy floating around that you couldn't get to, that you couldn't catch. It was just too frustrating. You know, so Husserl's going to come in, he's like the Obama yes we can figure. You know, he's going to say like, yes, we can. We can reach epistemological clarity and absolute truth. You know, and he just, he will try to leave that Kantian fatalism in, in the dust. Um, he thinks he can find a foundation. So he's looking for a foundation. 
He believes you have to start over at absolute zero, assuming nothing the way that Descartes did. And he's, what he's going to come up with is less a theory than a method. So phenomenology, you know, both as Husserl conceived it and to a large extent as it evolved, it's less a theory and more a method. So if you think of it as a method, you know, how he thinks we should be trying to understand the world, that might be helpful. Um, he wants it to be a rigorous science, but he also wants it not to be positivistic. He wants to break with positivism and empiricism, but he wants, he wants a science that will be the foundation for all other sciences. So he has these maximalist impulses, these maximalist aspirations. And he's going to begin with a couple things. He's going to begin with the world and the I. <laughs> So here we go, we have the world. Let's initially just assume that you know, the world exists, that objects in the world exist, that, that knowledge about them is possible. Now objects might appear in different ways um, because depending on your perspective, if you're like, if there's a pen on the ground, it's going to look differently from the way it's going to look at eye level, from the way it's going to look if it's across the room, so I, you know, from the way it's going to look if it's half in shadow or if the light's shining on it. So objects can appear in different ways, but that doesn't mean that objective knowledge about them is going to be impossible. The world is going to be, for, for Husserl, the world is like the horizon, the context in which objects appear to us. Okay, and there's only one world. There's one world, it's the horizon for everything. The second singularity, and the one that really matters, is, is the, the I, the, the self, the ego. If the world is the widest whole, the most all-encompassing context, the I is a thing in the world, but it's a thing like no other. It's a thing that in some way possesses the world. It's the I is that to whom the world is given. So given and givenness is another one of these words that is like an everyday world that like Husserl's gonna give his own special spin to, which is why it's on your handout in German, gegebenheit, givenness. The world is given to us. Um, you'll, it'll like flesh itself out, but things appear to us. You know, the I is special because it is also the dative of manifestation. We are those to whom the world is given. Consciousness is the starting point. The human subject is always going to occupy the position of centrality here. And in his kind of manifesto that he writes in 1910, philosophy as a rigorous science, he's then going to make the point where to follow the model, he writes, of the natural sciences almost inevitably means to reify consciousness. So to make consciousness into a thing as if it were a material thing. Something that from the very beginning leads us into absurdity. Okay, so here is where, here is where I think actually that conceptually the trickiest part comes in. To get a radical notion of consciousness that is not reified. Um, that is not, so consciousness is going to be a kind of thing that is not a thing that is not a material thing, and he is going to disentangle what he will call the transcendental ego from the empirical ego, um, which is, I'm gonna to try to talk you through how he does it. I think I can explain it in theory. I think to do it in practice is madness. 
I don't see how it could actually be done. So there's our empirical self, which is like the self who we are in real life. Each of us is different. You know, physically we're different, physiologically we're different, but also psychologically we're different. And not only in terms of any kind of hardwired makeup, but each of us has a different eye in that we've all had different experiences. We've had different experiences in the physical world, we've had different experiences in the, in the emotional world, we've had different experiences in the historical world. So each empirical ego, each really existing, you know, here and now in the world, I that is individual, is different. And that difference is contingent, like depending on circumstances, depending on where we were born, depending on what the weather is like, depending on, you know, whether you can, you know, run around outside and ride your bike all year, or does it snow in the winter? And so despite all of these things that can be different for each of us makes us each an empirical ego, makes us each different. Now, Husserl is going to try to get to an eye that is more essential than the empirical. Husserl is going to get, try to get to an eye that is simultaneously what is deepest, most interior, and essential in each of us, but is simultaneously absolutely universal and generic, and in some sense, qualityless, because it's going to be the same for each of us. This disentanglement of an empirical ego, which has a kind of reified form, is particular, and a transcendental ego, which is going to be universal. So you're simultaneously going into the singular and making it universal, which is, I think, kind of madness. But this is what it's all predicated on this. And the best... People have like, tried to kind of explain this with different analogies. Um, my, my friend Jonathan once tried to explain, he said, think about, think about water. You know, water, depending on where you are, it's going to look differently, it's going to taste differently. The water in Philadelphia tastes differently from the water in New Haven. You know, sometimes you, know, sometimes you get a little rust coming out, sometimes you get more chlorine, there's a salt water in the ocean, you know, there's, there's bottled water. If you put the bottled water in a plastic bottle, it's gonna taste a little bit differently from the bottled water that you put in your like, metal water bottle. So the water's always a little bit different. But Jonathan says, but there's H2O. There's a kind of pure essence of the water that is universal, that is always the same. The transcendental ego is like the H2O. Um, another way to think about it is how he's going to eventually ask us to think about the object, which is like, so you think about an apple. You're looking at an apple. A phenomenological description is going to go into like a very detailed description of how, for instance, a particular apple looks. So it might be a little bit lopsided. Maybe it's leaning to the right. Maybe there's a brown spot close to the stem. The red is kind of shifting into green and yellow. Each apple looks a little bit differently. There are no two apples that are exactly alike. Nevertheless, Husserl says, there's something in each apple that is a kind of almost platonic essence of appleness that makes each apple an apple that you can kind of mentally disarticulate. So there's the particular empirical apple, there's a particular instance of the apple, which is always different and reified and specific, a thing in the world, and then there's a kind of ideal essence of appleness, which is generic and universal. So Husserl's gonna kind of apply that to the eye, 
which again, it works much better for the apple than it does for the eye, but like it's the, the eye part is essential. Okay, so it is this, what, what it, the relevant subject in phenomenology is this pure, this pure ego, this pure transcendental essence of I-ness. Um, you can also think of it as a kind of Hegelian Aufhebung of empirical subjectivity. If you kind of think of it as being simultaneously taken to a higher level, negated, but also the essence preserved. It takes, you have to kind of put it in your head and just like let it stay there for a while and it will gradually flesh itself out. Although I have to say I've been banging my head against the wall about this for at least 15 years or so. And I see how he does it in theory, but I don't really see how it can be done in practice. Okay. Um, the eye that is going to be the relevant eye in phenomenology that is going to perform the method of phenomenology is this transcendental ego. So you're gonna to have to try to nudge yourself into stripping away everything that is particular in order to get yourself in the right philosophical frame of mind to do phenomenology. And Husserl's going to say, okay, so what is special about this ego? How is the ego going to reach the object? And he's going to say, well, the structure of this transcendental ego is not the Cartesian brainy but bodiless self that is in a box in a windowless box. The structure of the transcendental ego, Husserl will call intentionality. It's a term that he's taking from Brentano, that Brentano's kind of taking from Aristotle, but again, like it, it keeps kind of going through changes. Husserl's intentionality is a technical term. It's not intention exactly in the sense of like, I intend to call my mother tonight, I intend to go to the movies this weekend, I intend to study for the midterm. It's not that kind of intention. It's intentionality is a structure of consciousness and it's, you can think of it a little bit like a string with a magnetic arrow attached. So Husserl says the, the structure of consciousness is such that consciousness is always reaching out to grab the object. You know, it's always bursting forth towards the object. It's connected to the object like that string with the magnet. It's a kind of micro teleology. That is intentionality. Consciousness bursting forth towards the object. That's always, always grabbing it. And the philosophical move here is to say that it's not that you derive the subject from the object, or that you derive the object from the subject, you know, or vice versa. Subject and object, in the beginning there is the relationship. Subject and object are connected in a way that they cannot be disconnected. You start with the relationship between subject and object. And it, intentionality is then the bridge. Subject and object are always already connected by intentionality, this kind of microteleology. So where, when, when Kant was saying the ding on zik, the thing in itself, as the thing you can't reach, Husserl's going to reformulate this and say die Sache selbst. And this is another translation problem because Sache and ding both translate into English as thing, but they're diff two different words in German. And Husserl's gonna say the things themselves, which could also be the issues themselves, the matters themselves, the questions themselves, the real things are the objects as they appear to us in our experience as they are given to us. Um, what the phenomenological reduction is, 
is a process that, by which you nudge yourself up to this higher state of consciousness. You strip away everything's particular. You get in this like mode of like thinking with your transcendental ego. Um, and for who, what, what this is called for Husserl is you move from the natural attitude to the phenomenological attitude. Um, the natural attitude is that attitude that we are in, first of all, and most of the time every day where we just go about our business blithely assuming that the world exists. Blithely and naively assuming that the world exists. The phenomenological attitude happens when we kind of jolt ourselves into a higher state of awareness and start reflecting on the contents of our consciousness. The first thing you do in the phenomenological attitude is you take this whole question about what is real and does the world really exist, and you put it in brackets. This is the famous phenomenological bracketing. You take all these questions, is it real, is it not real, is it like, how do I know? You put that in brackets. You're not like, you're not doubting, you're not skeptical, you're just suspending the question. You're putting it aside, you'll come back to it later. Now, Husserl's critics will say he never really comes back to it. Um, but the idea is you put it in brackets and like it's still there. You haven't erased it, but you've taken it somewhere else. And you're now going to concentrate on an exhaustive description on the things, the objects, as they are given to pure consciousness. You know, as they are grasped by intentionality. So the method is profoundly descriptive. Again, it works much better in extrapolated form than it does in literal technical form. I, I was one, two years ago, I was teaching a seminar here in phenomenology, and I had a colleague from Poland who was visiting, who's a left-wing activist, um, and he was sitting in on this seminar, and my undergraduates were like tearing their hair out about this phenomenological reduction, and suddenly Swavik is like, oh, I do the phenomenological reduction every day. And they're looking at him like, you do what? And he's, like, and he's not a technical person at all. He's like, yes, you just have to like think of it metaphorically. It's like when we think about homophobia or we think about racism, you think, okay, can I temporarily put out of my mind questions about what's real and what's not real, and can I concentrate on an exact description of what I see? That's where it becomes very productive. That kind of, Husserl talks about that pure seeing. You know, can you put... These analytical questions out of your mind, can you concentrate on pure seeing? And there's an obsession in all his language with pure seeing, with epistemological clar uh, clarity, with this phrase he borrows from Descartes and uses in German as Klarheit und Deutlichkeit, which is clarity and distinctiveness. Now, the irony here is for someone who is obsessed with clarity and distinctiveness, he's incapable of writing a single clear sentence. I mean, he's unfortunately a completely miserable writer. Um, but, yeah, aside from that, um, <laughs> It's, it's, it's a methodology in which the vividness of what you're seeing is supposed to come to you. The human subject is going to remain the source of all meaning. Where you come into contrast with psychoanalysis is that for Freud, everything that is essential in the eye is what is most hidden. And for Husserl, you're going to get to pure consciousness, to that transcendental ego, and that eye will be absolutely transparent. It's all light. Nothing is supposed to be hidden in the end. Everything is supposed to be clear. So pure consciousness is going to imply the transparency of the subject to itself 
It's all about seeing, and all the language is about seeing. Okay, I'm now gonna tell you an anecdote about my, my son, who was then 10 years old during the pandemic, um, which maybe will illustrate something about the relationship between Husserl and Freud, or maybe may make you may feel sorry for children of academics like myself. Um, so we were in Vienna at the time, and he was going to a quite high stress, um, gymnasium in, in Vienna and you know moreover at, at a moment of the pandemic when they were like only in school part of the time and he's not really Viennese so it was very stressful um, and we were talking to him I was talking to him about test-taking test techniques and he was saying that I was like you know this stuff and he's like yes but I get all stressed when it's time to take a test and I'm like I'm grumpy and I'm annoyed about this and I'm annoyed about that and then I can't stop thinking about these things that bother me and then I'm not concentrating on the math and and I said okay you just need like a couple, you just need a strategy here. You know, so Husserl has this idea of bracketing, where you take all these, these things, these questions that can't be answered at the moment, and you put them in brackets. And they're still there, but you kind of put them in brackets so that they don't get in the way of the exercise you're trying to perform. They'll still be there after the test, but you'll have confined them to the brackets. And, and Caleb, my son, says, but I have too much grumpiness. It will not fit in the brackets. And I said, you know, brackets expand indefinitely. Husserl believed they could hold the entire world. And Caleb says, well, what about other universes? I said, well, he didn't mention anything about other universes. Um, he wasn't so clear on that, but the whole world is more, is more than enough. The brackets can fit the whole world. And he said, but, Caleb said, but the brackets then won't fit in my head. I said, but that's the beautiful thing about the brackets. You take them out of your head, and then you've got some space there to concentrate other th on other things. You've just removed them temporarily. And then Caleb says, but there's no such thing as taking things out of your head. Because if you take things out of your consciousness, they just get repressed into the unconscious. <laughs> I said, okay. But now you're taking a Freudian perspective. <laughs> and I'm trying to explain that in this particular situation, we really need Husserl um, and, and not Freud. Um, okay. Let me, um, let me tell you. The, the, very, the saddest moment is when Husserl's younger son is, is killed fighting for Germany in the First World War. And the family is devastated. And a few weeks go by, and Husserl says, okay, I have to get back to work. And he writes a letter to a friend saying, yes, this happened, but now the war is bracketed. Now the war is bracketed. <laughs> um, in 1933, when the Nazis come to power, Husserl, as a non-Aryan, um, is expelled from the university. He becomes a kind of non-person. Um, having been a fanatical German patriot during the First World War. Um, both of his sons fought in the First World War. And at a loss as to what to do as the Nazis have taken power in Germany, he goes into his study and he keeps trying obsessively to clarify the phenomenological reduction. Because he deeply believes that the reason why Europe has fallen into barbarism is because people have let themselves fall into a loss of faith in reason and a loss of faith in the possibility of getting to absolute truth. And that kind of irrationalism has led us to barbarism. And if people could just see that, yes, we can, yes, we can get to epistemological clarity and absolute truth, that would be the thing that would save the world.
He was deeply, deeply convinced of this. For him, the stakes were all or nothing. Either you get to absolute truth and pure epistemological clarity, or it's the madhouse. Okay, well, um, I'll see you on Monday, and we'll talk about Heidegger. <laughs> Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.